Uh, David's going to read the passage for us. The passage is from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 to 16. So if you guys want to open up your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 to 16. David's going to read this for us, and the pastor Paul will preach the word. Thanks, David. Thank you. Yeah, I'll be reading from 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16, and I'll be reading from the ESV version. Yeah. And the word of God says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, what was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thanks, David. Um, that's awesome. It's good to get to know kind of people. Not that I didn't know David, but good to know people. I um, hope you enjoy that and hope we can get to know more people over time. Um, hello again. Uh, if you don't know, my name's Paul. I'm one of the, um, I guess, pastors here at Kingsway. And I'm here to continue on a series that we've been going through. I think this is the eighth week. Uh, we're going through the book of First Timothy. Um, today we're looking at how we should lead, right? The title for today's sermon is Lead Like This. I want you to imagine you're turning up at your first day at a new job. First day, and you're a member of this team, but as you get there, they're throwing a party because one of the members who should be in your team is being promoted now to become team leader. And so you're at this party, you know, with these people, um, because this person is being promoted. And at one point, the CEO of the company stands up in front of everyone and brings up the person being promoted and says, this person is perfect for this job because of, and he lists a bunch of reasons, right? Number one, one of the hardest workers here in this company always arrives early and always leaves late, right? Number two, um, they're great at leading people. So I know that this position, they're going to lead people, and they've already done that. They're great at that. I know they've got the right skills. And number three, they know the company handbook, front to back, off by heart. Right? And everyone's cheering, ooh, right? If you're there sitting there listening to the CEO, you know, encourage this person, the question is, does that have anything to do with you? Right? On one hand, you might think, no. It's not about me, it's about that person. It's about a different position, right? I'm just a member of the team, that person's a leader of the team. It's unrelatable. And yet on the other hand, it's very relatable in a different way. Because you work in the same department of the same company that has the same goals and the same values. And as you hear the CEO commend this other person about a leadership position, you could probably infer things that you should take away. Right, the things that they're, they're being encouraged for might be things that you also might need to work at. It might be helpful for you to be a hard worker. It might be helpful for you to learn how to lead people. It might be helpful for you to begin to memorize the company handbook. Right? In those kinds of ways, you can infer things of value. Now, the reason why I start with this is because this is what we're finding here in today's section. Today's passage, or the, this chunk of verses, finds Paul this veteran, kind of aged, wise, church planter, leader, pastor, speaks specifically to Timothy, right? He's a fledgling pastor. And he's telling Timothy, this is how you should lead. Lead like this. Now, on one hand, it seems unrelated to us. You're not Timothy. 
You're not pastoring a church. You're not pastoring the churches churches of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And so it seems unrelated. And yet, again, on the other hand, if we would just listen in and we can adapt certain things, there's a lot that you can learn from this. Right? You can really take away things that are important for this church, for God, because we're a part of the same community with the same goals and the same values. And so as we listen to what Paul says to Timothy, number one, if you're a pastor or a leader or maybe you're thinking about becoming a future you know, full-time minister, these are things that are directly related to you. But also as we go along, I will apply it to the rest of the congregation. Now let me recap a bit of the context of where we find Timothy and who he is. There's a few things I want to point out. Number one, Timothy is a newly appointed pastor to the church of Ephesus. Right? This is a church that uh, Paul planted, he led for a few years, but now Timothy is, is there leading this church for this time. Number two, this is a troubled church. Uh, the church of Ephesus has a lot of problems, like a lot of churches did back then, like a lot of churches do right now. Right? But uh, this church was troubled. We found in chapter one that they actually had false teachers in the midst of the congregation, preaching heresy. Right? So there's some big problems there. Number three, Timothy, from what we can tell through the rest of the Bible, is quite a timid guy. Right? Timid Timothy. <laughs> that's, that's my nickname for him. Uh, we're going to find in the next letter, Paul actually says this to, to Timothy. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Right? It's interesting that Paul would say this to Timothy. It must be something that Timothy needed to hear. Timothy must have had a lot of fear. And when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, it's interesting. He says this to them. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Verse 11, let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace. That's such a loving thing for Paul to do. But again, it's interesting that he goes out of his way to tell the Corinthian church, hey, can you take care of Timothy? Can you you make sure he's not too stressed out? Put him at ease. Timothy must have, you know, to a degree, been quite timid. And number four, Timothy, we find in today's passage, is young. Verse 12 says, let no one despise you for your youth. Now, scholars, they debate about how young Timothy was actually. The range goes from, some people say, under 30, and some people say under 40. And so, you know, somewhere between the, I guess, the 30s, maybe. Uh, that's, that's where he would, he would lie. Now, some in the church, uh, again, because the church would have had varied ages, would have been much older than Timothy. Maybe twice the age of Timothy. There would have been people in the congregation who had children the same age of Tim- as Timothy, right? And so it's hard for him as he tries to pastor this very group of people, but especially those who are old. And the word is, let, don't let people despise you. That word means look down on you with contempt. And so possibly as Timothy's trying to lead this church, there are people in the congregation who are like, who does this young punk think he is? And what does he know about life? He's not old enough to know about suffering. He doesn't know about the workplace or getting married or being married or staying married or having children or raising children. Right? And he, he probably received some of these comments, which is why Paul says this in verse 12. And so as we come to Timothy and Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, he's in a new role in a troubled church. He's a timid person and there are old people who are looking down on him. And so understandably, he's probably feeling anxious self-doubting, insecure, maybe lacking some confidence, and not feeling up for the job. 
And so Paul writes to Timothy and says, in a word of encouragement and a reminder, I want you to lead in this way. These are the three things I want you to focus on as you lead. Right? And they, that's what we're going to look at today. Number one, lead with godliness. Now let me ask you, have you ever felt like Timothy might have felt in this situation? Maybe you got thrust into a new job. Maybe you had to lead a team and you're feeling a little anxious, self-doubting, insecure, lacking confidence, not feeling, feeling up for it. You know, every time I've been put into a pastoral position, I've felt exactly that way, right? I'm not the right guy, not ready for this. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? When I started the high school ministry, when I moved up to take the university group, when I planted this church, right? These are the feelings, at least I can uh, understand. And in that position, when I reflect on myself, I think we can default to leading in certain ways out of that insecurity. A few examples is you might try to lead with authority. Because you feel insecure, you overcompensate that by wielding your authority in front of others. I'm not sure that I belong here, and maybe other people don't feel like I belong here as a leader, so I'm going to press down on them with my title or with my authority and make sure they know know who I am. I'm the pastor of the church. Don't disagree with me. If you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with God. And try to enforce your authority upon others. Or you might lead with distance. Because I'm insecure, I'm not going to let people get to know me too well because they might then see through the facade that I've put up. I'm pretending I know what I'm doing, but if they get too close, they'll realize I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I'll lead with an air of mystery. Right? I'm just... I don't know who Paul is. He's just always you know, far away from us, right? And they never really get to know you. Or maybe the temptation is to lead with competence. I'm going to prove to everyone that I deserve to be here. And so I'm going to show them that I'm great at teaching or leading or doing seminars or that I'm wiser and smarter and more accomplished than some of these people here. Let me impress them with how good I am at leading. And I think maybe these temptations might have popped up for Timothy or maybe for you. Lead with authority or distance or competence. But interestingly, Paul tells Timothy to lead like this. Number one, command and teach these things, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in what? Not in authority, not in competence, but in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Paul tells Timothy, timid Timothy, young Timothy, insecure Timothy, I want you to lead like this, lead with godliness. Lead with a godly character. Now this is very different from the things that I just named. To be godly is not to lead with authority. To be godly is to be like Christ. And when you think about our Lord Jesus Christ, he had immense authority He's the most authoritative person in the world, but he did not wield it over other people. He did not lord it over the people that he followed. He did not wield it. He yielded it, right? He surrendered it, and he served like a humble servant. And so it's the complete opposite of leading with authority with a high position. Neither is it leading with distance, because to lead with example means that I need to, to a certain degree, let you know who I am. In my godliness, you need to be able to see it by the way that I speak and think and live. Now, not everyone may know the leader very closely, 
But at the same time, you can't shut off everyone. And neither is this leading with competence. You see, oftentimes we think competence is the most important trait in a leader. And I talked about this two weeks ago. In the workplace, when you're trying to find someone that you put in a position of leadership, you're looking for the person who can get the job done, hit the goals. They're very good at certain skills. But when it comes to the church, the most important trait is not competence, it's character. It's godliness. Your leaders, I mean, not that skills aren't important, but out of all the things you're looking for in your leaders, in your pastors, right at the top is godliness. And that's not the same as in the world. Success in the workplace is making a profit, accomplishing goals, and being efficient. And so it makes sense that in the workplace, you'd look for a leader with those qualities. But success in the church is to be like Christ. And so it makes sense that we look for a leader with those qualities, a godly leader, a Christ-like leader. As so Paul calls Timothy, lead with godliness. You're going to be distracted. You're going to be tempted to lead in all these other ways out of maybe your insecurity. But what I want you to chase after is to be like Jesus Christ. Right? Love the king, live his way. That's my paraphrase. Right? Try to be godly. And as Paul says this, he lists five specific examples of what godliness looks like. This isn't an exhaustive list. It's just five that, you know, maybe that Paul felt was important. Let me go through them quite quickly. Number one, speech. Speech. Now, when we think about all the traits of godliness, speech doesn't tend to, like, pop up as one of the top. But speech is very, very important. We went through the book of James, I think, a few months ago. In James chapter 3, James talks about the importance of the tongue. He says it's like the small rudder in a ship. And that small little rudder that we often overlook, that's under the water, we don't even see, is able to steer the whole ship. That small piece, like at the bottom of the ship. In the same way, he says your tongue will steer your life. It will determine which direction you will go in. That's how powerful the tongue is. James goes on to say your, your tongue is like a fire. It can bring tremendous warmth to the people around you like fire. Or it could bring horrific ruin to the people around you like fire. And then in James, in verse 2, James says this. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. If you can watch what you say, you can basically be perfect. That's how hard it is to tame your tongue, but that's how important it is that we use our tongue for good. Jesus says something similar. Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Your words are the barometer of your heart. They reflect what's going on down here. Your speech matters. That's generally for all of us, but specifically for someone like Timothy, whose job is one of the main roles he does is he preaches. He speaks in front of the congregation. And it's important that Christian leaders have good speech on the pulpit, pulpit, but also off the pulpit. You should expect of your leaders to have godly speech, nice, kind, encouraging words that come out of their mouths, loving words. You don't want leaders who, you know, go off the stage and they're full of gossip and no secrets safe for them. You don't want leaders who are harsh with their words, right? Elders are to be gentle, not quarrelsome. You don't want leaders who don't know when not to talk, right? You need leaders who know when to talk and when not to talk and listen. 
You don't want leaders who joke excessively, right? Like trolling, right? That it kind of pushes too far. And you're like, that's kind of hurtful. Right, speech matters. Number two, conduct. The second trait of godliness, leading with godliness, is conduct. Now, speech is observable and conduct is observable as well. If you take speech and conduct, you can kind of take the, everything that you can observe in a person. Now, if you remember the qualifications of an elder, right? Timothy is an elder, he's a pastor. It began and ended with how that person is perceived. Be above reproach, and then it ended with must be well thought of by outsiders. The way you act and how people see how you act matters in, as a Christian leader. Timothy is not just to talk about godliness, preach about godliness. He is to conduct himself in godliness, right? Walk the talk. And again, this isn't just for leaders. I want you to think about yourself, right, and how you live. Third, Christian leaders, as they imitate Christ, should be filled with love. Love. The most important commandment, love God, love your neighbor. Love. It is by the way we love one another that the rest of the world would know that we're Christ's disciples. That's John 13. We can do anything. We can move mountains. But if we have not love, we're nothing. Right? That's 1 Corinthians 13. Love. Right? Leaders should have love. Four, faith. Leaders, as they lead with godliness, should be an example of what faith looks like. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. The Christian life is a life of faith. All of your research and all the evidence, and there's evidence for why we believe what we believe, can take us to a certain distance, but eventually we need faith. Because we believe in a God we cannot touch. We live for a kingdom we cannot see. We hold on to promises that are both now but also will come to fruition in the future. And so we need faith as Christians and Christian leaders are to lead with faith, right? To show the church what a steadfast, godly faith looks like. And number five, purity. Leaders are to be pure in their relationships, in their thoughts, in their motives. Pure in their devotion to God. Right? Pure. And so what we seek in our leaders are these. And so the challenge for you, at the end of each point, and I've got three points, is I want to say this is going to affect how we seek our leaders, and this is going to affect you. Now first, when we seek our leaders, these are the five things, or the, the, the encompassing idea of what we should look for. Not competency, you know, not charisma, uh, not, not good fashion, godliness. Right? They should have these traits. You know, even for me, like I'll be honest, if I went and visited church and I sat down in the congregation, like I'm, I'm looking for like such stupid things sometimes. Like, oh, these seats are so comfortable and, you know, everything's so designed well. Like, I think I like this church, you know. It's a nice church. Like, I, do, do you think that way? And the pastor comes up and like, oh, he's got, he looks nice. He's got a nice haircut. He's wearing a leather jacket. He works out. I can listen to this guy. Sometimes we're like that fickle. But none of these traits is what Paul says Timothy should lead with. He should lead with godliness. But this also affects what we seek for ourselves. We need to reframe what we count as important for us as Christians. Timothy is called to lead with godliness because as he leads with godliness, the congregation is meant to follow Timothy as he follows Christ into godliness. Timothy leads with godliness because it matters for you. 
It matters for the congregation to be like Jesus. Again, worldly success looks like skills and profitability and efficiency. But success in the church is being like Christ. And so pursue Christ in your own life. The second thing Paul tells Timothy is to lead with God's word. Verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now there's these three words, reading, exhortation, teaching. They're not separate activities necessarily. Uh, They're intertwined. They're inseparable really. All of them encompass the importance of the word of God. As a a Christian leader leads, the word of God matters. As we gather, the word of God matters. And when you think about it, when we gather every Sunday, I don't know what percent, but like maybe 60% of what we do is this. It's the sermon. It's the reading of the scripture and then the exhortation and teaching that comes afterwards. And the reason we do this is because of passages like this. Now, this idea of the church gathering to read the Bible and to hear from it and be taught from it it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we see Ezra gather the people of God. And we went through Nehemiah a couple of years ago. And he says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so they gather the people, they read it, but they don't just read it. They kind of explain it so it makes sense to people so they can be taught in it and then live according to it. We see Jesus do the same. Right? The Jewish synagogue would do this. They would gather together and hear for them the Old Testament. And Jesus in Luke chapter 4, he came to Nazareth where he was brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And so the Jewish people do it, did it. And so as the Christian church began to emerge, they adopted this tradition into their own gatherings. And they would do the same. But there was one difference with the, with the church, with the early church. The difference was that they didn't just gather to read the Old Testament. They gathered and they read the apostolic letters as well. Right? Letters like Timothy. And what that shows is that even from an early stage, those letters were treated at the same authority as Scripture. They were treated as if they were God's Word. And they would gather, someone would read it, and then they would explain it. Now, Justin Martyr, he was born around the first century. He's an apologist and philosopher. He records this about Christians. He says, On the day called Sunday, all who lived in cities or in the country gathered together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles, right? This is the, the letters that would become our New Testament, And the writing of the prophets, that's the Old Testament, are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has finished, the president speaks, instructing and exhorting the people to imitate these good things. And so this, what we're doing now, is what he's explaining. This is a tradition that goes all the way back to 2,000 years ago to the early church and even beyond to the Old Testament times. Now Paul tells Timothy this. He is to devote himself to this. As a Christian leader, devote yourself to this. As you lead your church, devote yourself to the Word of God. It's interesting. This word devote has shown up three times already in this letter. It it showed up in chapter 1. When Paul talked about the false teachers, he says they devote themselves 
but they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation. In chapter 4, I think this was last week, Paul talks about those who leave the church, they depart from the faith, they too devote themselves. But they devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They devoted themselves to lies. And then in chapter 3, Paul talks about those who aren't suitable to be deacons. They too are devoted, just not to God's word. They're devoted to much wine. That word addicted is the same word. They're devoted to much wine. And it's as, if, it's as if Paul is telling Timothy to protect yourself from being like the false teachers who end up in heresy, to protect yourself from being like those who once were with us but then left the church, to protect yourself from being someone who should not lead or serve the church because you're devoted to the pleasures of this world. I want you to devote yourself to the Word of God. By devoting yourself to this, you won't be devoted to those things and you will lead the church and lead yourself in a godly manner. And I want you to think about that for yourself as well. It is in our lack of devotion, I think, to the Word of God that we often devote ourselves to other things. It's not that the false teachers weren't devoted. It's not that those who left the church weren't devoted. Everyone's devoted to something. The question is, is it God's Word or something else? Now again, this affects what we seek in our leaders. Seek leaders who lead with the Word of God. Go to a Bible teaching church. Now, if you don't stay at Kingsway, um, that's okay. For whatever reason, you go overseas, you're just passing by, you're from overseas, that's okay. What I strongly urge you is that you go to a Bible teaching church. Go to a church that opens up the Bible and you feel like you're being taught the Bible. Don't go to a church because there are churches that will open up the Bible. I, I think most churches will at least open up the Bible and they'll read it. But some churches will open up the Bible, they'll read it, and they'll never look, look, look at it again for the rest of the sermon. And it's maybe a bunch of stories or some other ideas, or maybe they'll refer to other books, but it doesn't feel like they're actually preaching from the Word of God. There are churches that will open up the Bible and use it as a launching pad to then go off to talk about a topic that mattered to the preacher, but that isn't really from God's Word. Go to a Bible teaching church. Timothy is charged by Paul to lead with God's word. Read it, teach it, exhort it. Now, I'm not saying we do it perfectly at Kingsway. I'm sure we can do it better. I'm sure there are churches out there that will look at us and be like, you guys don't love the word of God enough. <laughs> you know, I'm sure there are. But we try. We really try. And when we open up God's word, we, we try to teach it. I don't know if you noticed, but we, we, most of the time, not always, we go from the first verse that we just read, and we take you along verse by verse. There's a reason why we do that. We call this expository preaching. We're trying to show you and teach you what the Bible's saying. We go to context. We go, originally, Paul wrote this to Timothy. Do you ever wonder why we do that? It's so we don't take it out of context. So you know what the original intent was when the letter was written. Or what's the scenario? What did it originally mean? And from there, we pull out the principle. This is the principle we might learn, and then we apply that to our lives. But if you don't do the context, it's so easy to then take it out of context and use the Bible to say what it didn't originally mean. All of these things is Kingsway trying to lead with God's Word. The songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the decisions we make, we try to make it from God's Word. And so... Expect that from your teachers, your leaders, your pastors. 
Expect leaders who lead with God's word. Go to a church that teaches the Bible. But also for yourself. If Timothy is charged with this, it must matter for the congregation. God's word matters for you. You need God's word in your life to hear it, to meditate on it, right? to digest it, to chew on it. I know we're busy. I know it's hard. But I think there's never been a moment in the history of time where we are so easily able to access God's word. Right? There was a time when people couldn't get the Bible. We get it so easily. Like you can just, that's free ones back there, the blue ones. You can take one home if you don't have it. You don't even need to have a Bible. You just you can download it onto your phone just like that there's like a plethora of articles and resources out there you just google it's just all there the best teachers in the world right right there i won't name any um desiring god right They're right there john piper right just name one okay so easy right devote yourself to god's word right don't be like the false teachers who devoted themselves to Things that weren't God's word, myths and genealogies. Don't be like those who fell away because they were devoted, but devoted to the lies of the devil. Don't be devoted to the pleasures of the world like much wine. Devote yourself to God's word. And in your growth groups, in your accountability meetings, when you meet up with friends, right, is there ways that you can talk not just about life, but talk about God, right, encourage each other around God's word. Right, so lead. Lead with Godliness. Lead with God's word. Last, lead with gifts. The third charge Paul gives to Timothy is to lead with his gifts. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. There's a bunch of stuff in here that deserves a bit more time. But it appears that there was a specific event that happened in Timothy's life when elders came around him, they laid their hands on him, and Paul's talking about that event. Now, we don't know exactly what happened at that event. We don't have it in the Bible. But in Acts 13, there's a similar scenario where Barnabas and Paul, uh, the church of Antioch, gather around Barnabas and Paul. They lay their hands on them, they pray for them, and they send them off on their missionary journey. And quite possibly, Timothy, as he began his pastoral journey or pastoral work the elders recognized that they came around him laid hands on him they prayed for him right and paul's talking about that event and you actually see that uh even today when pastors are ordained or elders are ordained right the church or the elders might come around they lay hands and they pray for them and that's just a imitation of what has happened here and paul says at that time the gift was given by prophecy and, you know, that's a little, what does that mean? Um, that could mean that through the act of prophecy that the gift was kind of transferred to Timothy. But in the Greek, and you just got to believe me on this, it can also mean prophecy acknowledged the gift that was already in Timothy. Right? And I think that makes more sense. That might be the majority view. That God had given Timothy gifts or gift by the Holy Spirit. And the church recognized that Timothy was suitable to lead in this kind of position as a pastor. So they gather around him, lay hands on him, pray, and they acknowledge he has the right gifts for what God has called him to do. Now, we don't know exactly what the gift is either. Some scholars are like, oh, it could be this or that. It could be teaching is a one that a lot of people think it would be uh, because teaching is important in that position, but we just don't know. What's important to know is this. As God calls Timothy to serve him, God also equips him with the gifts that are necessary. 
If God calls you to serve him in whatever capacity he wants you to, he doesn't just leave you to figure it out in yourself. He doesn't leave you um, just in a place of weakness. God gives you the appropriate gifts that you need in order to serve him properly. It doesn't mean you're, you're, you have no weaknesses. It doesn't mean that there's no work to be done. But God does give you what is necessary. Right? I heard once, if God gives you vision, he gives you provision. Right? That's kind of rhyming. All right. God gives you <laughs> the gifts necessary. And as Paul encourages Timothy to lead with his gifts, he says three things. Right? I just want to point these out. Number one, he calls him out of passivity. As you lead with your gifts, don't be passive. Now, on the one hand, work, workaholism and working too hard can be ungodly. It can lead to sin. But I think often uh, when we serve God, we're just too passive. We don't use our gifts. We neglect our gifts, as Paul says. This might be due to various reasons. We're lazy, or we just think, oh, well, my gifts are good enough, and I don't need to put in extra work. They'll, they'll carry me through. I can wing it. Maybe we're just unwilling. God has gifted you, but you're like, mm, I don't really want to use my time to serve God. And so we just, we just leave it. And Paul warns Timothy against being passive with your gifts. Do not neglect the gift you have. In verse 15, he says this, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Right, verse 15, I think, would cover everything he's talked about, by the way. Practice godliness. Immerse yourself in godliness. Practice with the word of God. Immerse yourself in it. But also practice your gifts. Immerse yourself in your gifts. Don't neglect it. Paul says something similar to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Fan into flame the gift of God. God has given you a gift, but that does not mean you just leave it alone. It does not mean that you don't need to put in hard work. Whatever God has given you, utilize it, put in the effort, fan it into flame that you can make the biggest impact for his kingdom and his glory with whatever God has given to you. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of the talents. It's a very similar idea. There's a master who leaves for a little while and he bestows upon his servants his property talents, right? This is money. And he gives it to them that they might steward it well. It's not theirs. It's the master's, but I want you to use it while I'm gone. One of the servants hides the talent. He buries it in the ground. He's passive. And he's the only one the master rebukes. Lazy, fear, unwilling. I don't know the reason, but he he just buries it. And the master comes back and he says, you are a wicked and slothful servant. He did not steward the gift God had given him. God has gifted each and every one of us. If you are a believer, he has gifted you first with the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you believe, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. But second, he has also gifted you from the Holy Spirit, a gift from the Holy Spirit, at least one. And our master expects us to steward those gifts for his glory. To not just sit on it. To not be passive. To not just come to church and only consume and receive. We are to give back to God and his kingdom. Paul also says, when you steward your gifts, don't do it out of pride. You see, once we stop being passive and we begin to put effort into serving God, we can fall into a different kind of pitfall, which is pride. 
Passivity says, this is God's gift and I don't need to work it. Pride says, look at all the hard work I've done and look at what I've accomplished. Look how great I am. There are people who work hard in the church, who utilize their gifts, but it only fuels their own glory. They only make it about themselves and not God. And that too is ungodly. Paul says to Timothy, this is a gift which has been given you. Again, God has gifted it by the Holy Spirit. The church has affirmed it and laid hands on him, but it's God. It's God's gift. We call it a gift because it's been gifted to us. It did not originate with us. Without God, we would not have it. It's gifted to me for the sake of others that I might gift it to them. Imagine in the parable of the talents, one of the servants takes the the master's money, which isn't his, and then goes around and boasts about how rich he is. Oh, look at at what I got. Uh, I'm so rich. Throwing the money around. You'd be like, that's not yours. That's the master's. But too often we parade our gifts around as if it's all about us. When the reality is, it's not ours to belong with. It's God's. He's merely lent it to us for this time that we might use it for his glory. Remembering this, that it's God's gift, stops us from being so self-absorbed that we will become prideful. But there's a different form of pride that I think shows up in the church when it comes to gifts, and that's false humility. You know, early on when I started the ministry and I'd be preaching, sometimes people would come up to me and say, that was a great sermon. How do you respond to that? This is how I used to respond. I used to be like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, you're so bad. Oh, you know, oh, I could have done so much better. And, you know, I stumbled at these certain points. And I thought that was godly. I thought that was me being humble. Like, you know, like, oh, like oh, no, it was bad. I, like, I could have done more. This is what I realized. That, in, that is a different form of pride. You see, the person who's self-absorbed and says, look at how great I did, I'm so great, that's pride. But the person, me, is similarly self-absorbed, except I'm looking at what I've done and I'm just thinking, I did a bad job. This person thinks they did a good job, this person thinks they did a bad job. Either way, both people are self-absorbed. Either way, both people think what they're doing is up to them. They're treating it as if it is their gift. If you can really understand that your gifts are from God, that this isn't about me, it's about God, then when someone comes up to you and says, great sermon, you can say, thank you. Right, that's great to hear. And hopefully not be up yourself. Because in your heart, when you say thank you, that's encouraging, that's great to hear, what you're really saying is, that was God. Right, and really mean it. Right, when they affirm your gift, they're not affirming you, they're not praising you, they're praising God, who is the giver of gifts. Right, which is why often when people are encouraged, they say, great sermon, they say, praise God. That's what they mean. Praise God. It's God. God's gift. And God did it all. Now, you can say that and not mean it. And in your heart, be like, praise me. But hopefully, you really mean praise God. This is God's gift. Be God-focused in your gift. Don't be prideful. But also, as you exercise your gifts, don't be passive. Don't be prideful. But Paul also calls us out of perfectionism. Another pitfall that we can fall into as we begin to utilize our gifts, is to feel like we need to be the best. And so it's so encouraging, at least for me, that Paul says this. 
Do not neglect the gift you have. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. But why? So that all may see your progress. Progress. That's all we want. That's all we want, Timothy. You don't have to be the best. We just want you to see, we want to see you grow. We just want to see you try and progress in your gifts, in your holiness, in your interaction with God's word. The demand is not perfection. The demand is progress. Progress means I'm not where I used to be. But progress also means there is still room to grow. I have not arrived. And that's okay, Timothy. That's okay, pastor. That's okay, Christian leader or person in the church who serves. You don't have to be perfect. That reminds me of something I always say to Ruben lately. He goes to school now. He studies he goes to play basketball. And I know sometimes I feel like he has the pressure of like having to beat everyone. And I tell him, Reuben, you don't have to be the best. You just have to try your best. Right? And I keep telling him that. You just have to try your best. That's all I want to see. We still love you, even if you get three air balls in basketball. <laughs> Did you try? <laughs> you really tried. And you missed. But, you know, we still love you. You don't have to be the best. You just have to try your best. Try your best. Have fun. You'll get better. Right? In the same way. You don't have to be perfect. We just want you to see you progress. This affects what we seek in our leaders again. Christian leaders should lead with their gifts, not passive. Expect from your leaders not to be passive with their gifts. You want them to be hardworking, not lazy. Put in the effort. You don't want them to be prideful in their gifts. You want leaders who are humble, God-glorifying, steward their gifts, and then return it all to God. But you should also expect your leaders not to be perfect. Expect progress, not perfection. Sometimes I think we demand from our leaders, our pastors, our growth group leaders, ministry leaders, perfection. Don't demand perfection. It's too hard. No one's perfect. Only Jesus is. Sometimes it's not enough that they're good at preaching. They have to be the best at preaching. And then when someone is better at preaching down the road, pops up, we're like, well, I'm moving to that church. But that's not helpful to the kingdom. Just seek progression, not perfection. And help them along the way, affirm them, appreciate them, be gracious and patient. But also, this changes what you seek for yourself. We all have gifts. God has gifted us. And so don't be passive with them. Don't be filled with pride. It's God's. And you just keep progressing in them, utilize them and grow in them as you expand God's kingdom. Your gifts are gifted from God to you to be stewarded well for his glory. And so I said a bunch of things. Here's the summary. Timothy's in a new role. He's in a troubled church. He's a timid person. There's older people. He's anxious, insecure, and all these things. So Paul reminds and encourages him, focus on these three things as you lead. Lead like this. Lead with godliness. Lead with God's word and lead with your gifts. Lead with godliness in these kinds of areas. This is how leaders should lead in the church. Lead with God's word. God's word matters. Be devoted to it and lead with the gifts that God has given to you. Seek these things in your church. Encourage these things in your leaders, right? And so when I say that, I'm talking about you know, me, the, past, the pastors, the leadership, the council, the future elders, your ministry leaders, your growth group leaders. Seek these things and pray for these things, but also for yourself. 
we're going to pray. And as we pray, I want us to pray for two groups. We're going to pray for the leaders, and we're going to pray for ourselves. And as we pray for these two groups, I want you to pray for two things. Thank God and ask God. As you pray for your leaders, thank God for the areas that you can see they're doing well in this. Thank you, God. But then also ask God to help the, the leaders in the areas that they, they can do better in. And then as you pray for yourself, do the same. Thank God for the areas that you're doing well in. Are you doing well in your godliness? Are you doing well in uh, interacting with God's word? Are you doing well with your gifts? Thank God in the areas that you are, but in the, in the areas that you aren't, ask God to help you that you would utilize them. They're important for your leaders, but they're also important for you. Right, let's close our eyes and let's pray. Pray for your leaders, pray for yourself, thank God, and then ask God for help. Can we do that together? This is what God wants from our leaders, and this is what God wants from you. Let's spend a bit of time in prayer. Let's pray.